whenever an artist makes a marketing plan today, it is really important that they take an account that the world is their oyster right now because digital platforms enable them to do that. Hey everyone, welcome to How Music Charts, where we pull back the curtain on today's music business, exploring music industry trends, music data, and the creativity that helps your favorite artists hit the charts. I'm your co-host Jason, and you'll hear from our other co-host Rutger soon. This podcast is owned and operated by Chartmetric, a music data company that connects numbers to narratives to help the music industry leverage the power of data analytics. On this episode, we talk to A&R professional and Latin American music scene expert, Francisco Toscano. Francisco is about to release his third article on the Chartmetric blog called The Rise of Regional Latin Music Part 3, Latin Music Genres Evolution. It is his grand finale of the three-part series. Here we will preview where he sees not only Mexican genres like corridos or Colombian music like cumbia going, but how these and other forms of Latin American genres are mixing to create new music for today's younger generations. Francisco is an A&R researcher for a major label based in and from the great city of Ciudad de Mexico and has a background in financial services. He holds an MBA from Yesabe in Barcelona and a master's in the music business at New York University. So without further ado, please welcome to the How Music Charts podcast, Francisco Toscano. Hello, Francisco. Hi, hi Jason, hi Rutger. Thank you guys for having me on a third time. And so it's very hopefully able to wrap up Nicely, this series of uh, regional music genres from Latin America that have been doing pretty well on digital platforms. Absolutely. Uh, we've been learning a lot from everything you've been doing. So I wanted to start out before we get into a lot of these kind of like future genres, if you will, uh, of, of Latin regional music. You know, overall, for the past three articles, you've been doing a lot of work in terms of comparing a lot of um, Mexican artists and Colombian artists and with you know, people from the Anglo-English speaking music realm. Uh, so I, I'm kind of curious, you know, from, from your field of expertise, how has that kind of struck you? Uh, were, these, were these all surprises for you? Did you already know this the whole time? Is this kind of old news? Um, what's been like your experience uh, kind of discovering a lot of these different comparisons? I think we, and I'm speaking in plural when I say we, because, um, in the Latin music world, we know how big our, our artists are. Um, but as you know, and I'm sure it happens with uh, artists from, from, from other parts of the world, the reference to a global superstar has always been um, music stars that usually perform in English, either coming from the United States or from the UK mainly, of course, not exclusively. Um, so those are the stars that every artist used to look up look up to and aspire to become. And I think for um, a big period of time, they were Latin music stars were smaller, where probably they had huge careers, but uh, we, we thought they were not comparable to, to Anglo music superstars. And uh, going and actually checking that, and putting it down to numbers, it was surprising to me to confirm something that I thought was maybe the case, but I never really took the time to, to verify. So it was surprising a little bit, and, and in a good way, of course, to see that we have artists in Latin America who have become um, so big, especially from genres that are not necessarily related to the Latin music mainstream. Because, of course, if you speak about Shakira, if you speak about J Balvin, 
if you speak about Luis Miguel, who's um, like our Frank Sinatra, if you will, a crooner that has been doing this in Spanish for a long time now. Those artists, of course, we knew they were huge. And those artists had the opportunity to collaborate with artists like Frank Sinatra in the case of Luis Miguel, for instance. Uh, but we didn't think that ranchero artists or that um, vallenato artists uh, were, were so big. I think um, the digital platforms have put this music to the reach of people all over the world and have been, have been also made possible the discovery of this music for people who were not familiar with it. And that has really helped um, regional music genres to be known around the world. So it's, it's been a quite interesting and learning journey for, for me as well, because uh, the fact that we do this for a living and that we are dealing with music, music and statistics every day doesn't mean that we have the responses to everything. So doing these specific pieces for uh, in partnership with you guys has been really enlightening for me as well. Hmm. So for the last part of the series, you decided uh, to focus on four genres in particular, cumbia sonidera in Mexico, uh, cumbia pop in Argentina mm -hmm. and Uruguay, trap corrido in Mexico, uh, especially in cities close to the uh, Mexican-American border, and guaracha electronica mm -hmm. in Colombia and, Me and Mexico. Can you talk a little bit mm -hmm. about why you chose these four uh, hybrids of, of genres in particular and what significance they have for kind of the growth of regional Latin music overall? Of course. Um, the first reason why, why I chose these uh, music genres is because first, um, music as a cultural expression has inevitably to evolve. And a lot of the regional music genres are now being propelled. Its consumption is it's being propelled not only by the people from from uh, from where these music genres originated, but also from uh, by by the sons and daughters of of the people who migrated to other markets to to look for a better life, such as the United States, probably the epitome of of a country built um, by different communities of immigrants. Uh, but also, I've seen um, through the work that, that, that I do that this specific um, regional, uh, Latin, uh, regional Latin American music genres is starting, started to evolve and started to mix with other types of music done in other parts of the world. And, so, and, and because of that, they were getting modernized. And uh, that, in a way... Um, shows the endurance of, of the original music genres come hailing from Latin America and also ensures that um, they are they are going to to endure as 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 years go by. And the younger generations are taking these music genres and making them their own. And as a consequence we we have seen um, artists um, having huge numbers and having huge hits uh, doing updated versions of these music genres. So I thought it was worth to see that when we would speak about cumbia or about vallenato or even about guaracha or about mu ranchero music, we were not talking about music that was outdated, but we're talking about music that the younger generations, not only in Latin America, but also in markets such as the United States are listening to. When so. Cumbia going global. So 
you know, you, you mentioned Cumbia uh, in the last, like the second part of this series. Can you give us a quick refresher mm-hmm. on what it is, where it came from, what it sounds like? Yeah, of course. Uh, Cumbia is a music genre that um, originated in Colombia, in the, in the Atlantic, uh, Atlantic coast of, of Colombia. And it fuses elements uh, from the Native American populations from, from that part of the country. Um, as you know, there was, because due to slave trade, there was also significant, um, there were significant uh, settlements from people brought from Africa, different parts from, from Africa, not, not a specific part from that huge continent, because it's huge. And, uh, and uh, elements coming also from Europe, from, from, from the colonizers, from, from, from Colombia and most of Latin America. And, uh, uh, and cumbia means, or, or most of, of, of the experts on, 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 on this, agree that cumbia comes from the, the African um, word cumbe, which means party, or, you know, like, uh, like some sort of a revolution. Um, and uh, this genre has been around for a couple of, of, of centuries already. However, it started like around the mid, mid um, around, around mid 20th century, started to migrate to different countries of Latin America to the degree that um, every Latin American country now has its own cumbia movement uh, with its own flavor. And, uh, and that's why I thought it was important to, to speak about it because uh, cumbia has been evolving differently in different parts of, of, the, of the continent. But at the same time, it, it, has, been, it has become uh, like an element that, ha- that is truly has a Latin American identity. Because even though cumbia from Peru and cumbia from Mexico and cumbia from Colombia and cumbia from uh, from Argentina have are different and have different elements. Um, they all identify us as Latin Americans for the people who, who who listen to it and for the people who perform it. So I thought it was a really relevant music genre to speak because of that. It's like a unifying uh, music genre, if you will. Right. So it's more seen as an inclusive as opposed to like, oh, that's uh, Uruguayan type of cumbia or or that's Argentina. Exactly. Not that much into it. It's kind of the opposite. That's cool. Exactly. Super cool. Mm-hmm. So let's talk mm-hmm. about cumbia in, in Mexico. So uh, cumbia sonidera. Um, uh, how mm-hmm. did cumbia, first of all, get to Mexico? And can you talk a little bit about some of the artists that define that particular flavor um, of cumbia? And from a data perspective, what kinds of numbers are you seeing a lot of these artists uh, achieving? Yeah, of course. Uh, cumbia arrived in Mexico first because um, uh, during the 1940s and the 1950s, um, music com- coming from uh, other parts of, of, of Latin America and, of course, from Spain, uh, were being used in, intensively in movies. And uh, in the 1940s and 1950s, a lot of uh, movie directors were inviting stars from Cuba, for instance, stars from Spain, st- stars from Argentina, from Colombia, etc., and using those uh, that music in in in, in the movies that were being made in Mexico because Mexico had a really powerful movie industry and film industry during the 1940s and 1950s. And uh, as a consequence, a lot of artists um, pr- propelled their careers to, to, to regional prominence from Mexico because of the movies that were, made, were being made here. Because one of, of the genres that, that was really popular during that time were movies in which artists would perform on camera and sing. 
and uh, and that was a really specific uh, movie genre that was really popular in Mexico. So artists from all over Latin America and Spain started coming to Mexico to tour after they would appear or had the opportunity to, to come here because they were already uh, getting um, re local recognition because of, of the movies. Um, but Cumbia properly starts getting into Mexico until the 1970s. And that's when it, that music genre starts uh, mixing with the local music, music scene and uh, Latin American electronic music being done here, which is the or origin of Cumbia Sonidera. Cumbia Sonidera is a genre from Cumbia uh, that um, was created ma mainly by, by DJs that started doing st massive street parties, mainly in Mexico City and also in Monterrey, but Mexico City was probably the, the city in which this started happening first. In, in the working class neighborhoods in Mexico City, they would close streets and throw these giant parties and, and they were hosted by DJs, which they were called sonideros um, because they would put not only tropical music like cumbia, but also electronic music coming from other parts of the world. Uh, some of these DJs became producers themselves. So what they started doing is starting mi mixing the sounds that they, would, um, they were getting from, they, they were arriving from the United States and Europe and then mixing them with the tropical music arriving from Colombia. So uh, Cumbia Sonidera, it, it started like bootlegs, if you will, from their original Colombian songs, um, adding electronic elements uh, that the DJs would, would craft in order to throw their massive parties. And then they would seal, sell illegal copies in, in their parties. Um, and uh, first, of course, using tapes, cassettes, and, and then CDs, you know, when the CDs properly arrived. Mm -hmm. And uh, this movement became so big that um, artists starting to, started to, to, to lean towards this, this kind of sound. And uh, one of the artists that probably, because there's, there's tons of artists of this, of this type, as you, as you can imagine, but um, there are only a few who, who really were able to attain international recognition and also build a career properly using Cumbia Sonidera as a genre, per se. Um, and the biggest up to today is Los Angeles Azules. They've been around since, since the 1970s. They're a really old band, but they started doing Rupero music, which is a genre that was done in Mexico um, and was born in Mexico during around the same time. But it's not related to Cumbia, but it's more related to to pop and it has a little bit of rock as, as we already explained. And, um, and they pivoted later in, in the mid, mid 1980s to Cumbia Sonidera. And then they, that's where they started getting a commercial success. Probably one of their first hits is Como Te Voy a Olvidar, which is anybody who's Latin American. If you mentioned that song, they're, they're, they're going to know which, how, how it sounds because it's huge. It's hugely popular, and uh, and because of that popularity, they started also doing collaborations with um, pop artists, and that helped them propel their fame and broaden their their fan base even more. Uh, some of the later latest hits that they've had is Amor a Primera Vista, who who features actress and pop singer Belinda. And Lalo Ebrat, who is a Colombian uh, artist who has been doing reggaeton and has had um, regional success. 
And um, of course, a couple of years before that, they did uh, Nunca Suficiente, a collaboration with Natalia Laporcade. Uh, originally, it was a song that she, she launched on her own, and it was a success. And then Los Angeles Azules made, made a remix, if you will, with her. And that video, it's over 1.2 billion views today, just to get you an idea. Billion with a B. So their, their success has been so massive that they're today the biggest cumbia artists in the world. Even though cumbia is not properly um, um, Mexican genre, although cumbia sonidera is because it was born in Mexico. Um, a Mexican artist is not the biggest uh, uh, cumbia act in the world right now. And uh, they're the most followed artists on, on Spotify and on Deezer as well. And if you compare some of their statistics, they can be compared. If, if you take Spotify as a reference, Clean Bandit, this um, British, British pop, pop uh, duo, I think there are another, like three, right? Um, they have had huge hits with many of, of, the, uh, of um, the biggest uh, American pop stars, such as Demi Lovato, for instance. They, they have a, around the same number of followers on Spotify as Clean Bandit. If you, if, you, if you want to explore another another genre, they are also on the same uh, on the same range as Florida Georgia Line, who is a pop uh, country crossover group who has had a couple of hits um, lately as well. And uh, if you see their numbers on YouTube, because as as you see, as you as we already know, YouTube is huge in this kind of of of, uh, of artists. They have seven point forty seven billion views on on their channel. And uh, just, if, if you want to compare them on YouTube, they're bigger than Beyonce on YouTube on, on, on monthly views of Queen Bee, you know? <laughs> We're not talking about just any other artist. And, and they're just below Cardi B, who's, this, who's now a pop phenomena, even though she's a rap artist, she's, I think, the ultimate uh, pop artist in many ways, uh, multi-platform multi -platform star. And they're just below Cardi B, you know? And many people, don't, don't even know that. So, uh, so that's that's pretty mind blowing. I would say. I love I love how you keep making these cross cultural comparisons because it really helps break down those like kind of silos, those cultural silos our minds kind of go to. Oh, exactly. I'm, I'm in English rap world right now, or oh, I'm in like you know cumbia Spanish world right now. But there's a lot of there's a lot to be kind of connected to in terms of just the pure kind of audience like they attract and like the streams that they're getting. Um, online. I think it's great. So, uh, so cumbia in Argentina and, and Uruguay, so cumbia pop. So it's a different form of cumbia. Cumbia in, in, in Argentina and Uruguay went on a different path because I, instead of getting mixed uh, in, in street parties, uh, it started getting mixed with um, Argentinian rock because as you know, Argentina is a country who is probably the, 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 the ultimate uh, place where where you can find probably the biggest rock in Spanish bands in 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 the whole Latin America. It's a country known for its really strong rock scene, and uh, it 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 became a mix of Argentinian rock and cumbia. And I, I know that sounds weird, but that's that's how it was born initially. But then um, as as time went by, they started including in 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 the elements of cumbia pop elements from electro pop from the nineties. Um, you know, Backstreet Boys and that kind of stuff. Uh, so it leaned more into 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 a pop 
into a pop scene rather than an electronic and, 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 and regional uh, popular music. So the sound, if, if you listen to cumbia, to cumbia pop right now, which is also known as cumbia cheta in Uruguay and, and in Argentina, you're going to listen to, to tracks that are, could, could, could be qualified as being pop hits dressed as cumbia tracks, if you will, uh, because of the song structure, because of the sounds that are being used. And it has worked tremendously for them. Um, there are several artists that, um, that we, could, we, could, we could think of. Uh, probably the trailblazer on this, on this specific genre is called Agapornis, which is a band that continues to be active until today. Uh, there's also an, Urugu an Uruguayan band called Marama, which was huge as well. Another band called Mano Arriba. But probably the one who's had the biggest um, regional repercussion is Rombay. They were born in Uruguay as well, because Uruguay, because of its, uh, in spite of its small size, it's it has become a a huge uh, music machine not only for cumbia pop but for trap, Latin American trap. But that's another another story. Um, and uh, they were born in 2014 in this in in this uh, in this country. It all, it all started as a game for them. Like, like friends that got together in order to make music, they uploaded a track on YouTube and it went massive. And, uh, and they're, they're signed now to a major label because of that. And they have had several hits with several million, million plays. And, and, and because of that, that movement started to gain more and more traction, not only in Argentina and Norway, but in the neighboring countries. But Rambai is possibly the first one to be able to cross the triangle in the south in, of, of Latin America, which is Chile, Uruguay, and Argentina, and travel north and have hits and, and collaborate with artists that are actually relevant and in other countries, like from Colombia, for instance, or from Mexico. And uh, just to put them in context, um, if we if we want to compare their their views on on their YouTube channel, they're in the same um, neighborhood than the band in 1975. You know, the British pop rock band. Or we we can also compare them to Charlie Puth, none none other than him, which is an artist who has been really prominent on the pop scene uh, worldwide in the in these last couple of years. And um, also, if, if we want to see as, uh, how many monthly listeners they have on Spotify, uh, they, are, they can be compared to Aaron Chupa, this Swedish artist and DJ producer as well. And, uh, and that gives you an idea on how important it is becoming to, to the, the Argentinian and Uruguayan movement for, for the Cumbia movement as a whole, you know? Uh, there's also another, a couple of other artists that, that we can uh, mention. Uh, one is the Argentinian duo Migrantes, who's seen an explosive growth in the, in, since November last year. They were really small. They had a couple of local hits, but that just gives you an idea how TikTok can, can change the life of any artist today. Um, because uh, they launched the song Si Me Tomo Una Cerveza in November 2020. And uh, but two months later, they had, um, they had gone from 100,000 listeners on Spotify on November to 5.57 million on January, if I'm correct. If, if that's not an exponential growth, I don't know what it is, you know? 
just with with one song and this that song was taken up by a major label and major cumbia pop artist and even a trap artist from from argentina jumped into it and uh so i think that migrantes for instance is another um uh, cumbia pop act that we need to look at and we need to look as the cumbia pop movement as a whole because it can give you a surprise and become a really big movement regionally in in, in a couple of months even you know so let's talk trap corrido um which is you know a sort of combination between mexican corridos and american trap so this genre is more a result of american influence spreading south can you explain the context why it's so big especially in like border cities what is a corrido how do the genres work so well together on a cultural level yeah, um, there are several artists, because this is a, a genre that is still being analyzed by many music executives and music journalists, and and they've been trying to understand how so two genres that seem so far, up, so far apart, such as trap and regional and, and corridos, which is original Mexican music, how they could mix and how could it work. Um, one of the things that many artists, have said that many artists that work in this genre that, ha that have said, and I think it's part of, of, of the reason on why they fuse it because both corridos and trap are street music in quotes, are music that was born in the streets. And it's music that whose purpose is to tell a story, you know, as, as we spoke on, on our original Mexican music genres piece, um, corridos were, um, had even a cultural function at the beginning because it, it had a purpose of documenting the lives of war heroes or even um, king, drug king, kingpins and stuff like that. And this kind of, uh, of characters that were relevant to the specific community. And Trap does the same using a different, a different music genre and different beats. So they had this in common, uh, this ethos, if you will. So um, when you have the sons and daughters of Mexican immigrants in border cities in the United States, um, listening corridos at home and uh, listening trap on the streets and on the school and at school and stuff like that, it was bound to happen. And uh, that's why uh, it first originated in, in, in big um, uh, cities uh, located in close to, to the Mexican border, such as Houston, you know, or LA or the whole Southern California uh, area. Uh, because of, of the cultural uh, proximity of uh, with Mexico, but also the dominance of, of trap music in, in on the mainstream there. And since both elements, since both genres had, had the purpose of um, telling a story or documenting their lives, because Trap Corrido speaks a lot about the lives of, of these young artists and the lives of, of their friends. And, and they speak, of course, about, uh, you know, smoking weed and probably a little bit of crime because Corrido and Traps tend to speak about that. They also speak about the pride of, of, of being the sons of an, of an immigrant and being proud of your, of your roots, you know, because uh, Trap Corrido sp speaks a lot about that and in their, in their lyrics. And and it's it gives them a, a sense of belonging, you know, uh, in in their new country, in, because 
these people experience one culture outside of their homes and a different one at home. And they've merged these two worlds and have created their own with, with this music. So a lot of trap corrido artists you'll listen to have one track maybe that sounds nothing like what you think of as a quintessentially, you know, trap sound and another track that does. What accounts for that? Is trap more of a cultural influence than a sonic influence on this particular genre hybrid? Or are there particular artists that are a little bit more on the trap spectrum than the corrido spectrum, side of the spectrum? I think it's a little bit of both. Um, because, of course, we have Mexican artists who are doing trap corrido here. And uh, their sound is different because trap is not as big in Mexico as it is in the United States. And the trap that is being done in Mexico, the sound is very different as well. Uh, the trap that is being done in Mexico is very old school, kind of a 90s California sound, as opposed to what you listen in the US or the trap that you, that you listen hailing from Colombia or from Argentina, because everybody has their own flavor. Um, the trap that the trap corrido that is being done in Mexico has more lo, more of a local flavor and it's very easily not noticeable. Uh, so I think it's both a sonic influence because of how exposed you are to this music genre, and it's also a cultural influence because of 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 the same reason. Uh, how how often are you listening to to trap um, um, American artists and how does how does that affect your taste and your vision of the world? It's, I think it's a little bit of both. So let's move on to uh, Waracha Electronica. Can you describe a bit of the historical context for this genre and what countries and genres are involved in this particular hybrid and why dance is so important? Yeah, sure. Um, Guaracha Electronica, surprisingly, its its main origin is not a Latin American genre, but it's Latin tribal house. Um, uh, Latin tribal house. It's electronic music that incorporated Native American beats onto their on, onto onto its sound, and it became a, a global, uh, not really a global, but a regional phenomena. In I would say in the early two thousands, and uh, but when it arrived in Colombia, the the Latin tribal sounds. And specifically in this, to the city of Cali, which is the third biggest city in Colombia, um, the Colombian DJs started incorporating the Native American and African sounds, the Colombian Native American and, and Colombian African sounds into the Latin house uh, music that they were doing. So they created their own movement, if you will, their own subgenre. And, and but instead of call, calling it tribal, which is the way that is known, for instance, in Mexico, tribal, we say it, uh, they called it guaracha electronica. Why? Because a lot of the sounds that were being used or in, or that were incorporated into into guaracha electronica come from guaracha, and guaracha um, it's a genre that originally came from Spain, and then what then was exported to. To, to Latin America, but it, it was specifically relevant in Cuba, in all along the Caribbean coast, but probably Cuba and Colombia were the countries in which this genre found uh, a better home and was able to stay relevant. Uh, and uh, Huaracha has a specific type of, of, of style of dancing. 
And uh, the people that are fans of Guaracha, since a, a couple of the sounds that come from Guaracha were incorporated into Guaracha Electronica, uh, they started using Guaracha steps, dance steps, in when whenever dancing to Guaracha music. That's why um, people started naming uh, the Colombian Latin tribal house Guaracha. It was because the 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 music fans in Colombia started dancing it using Guaracha steps. It's it's interesting where where the names comes comes from and and how they made it their own. It was through the dance steps. One artist that is particularly big in this genre is Davey. And he had yeah. some crazy, uh, over the past two years, like 3,000% growth year over year uh, on Pandora, mm -hmm. especially. Can you explain mm -hmm. why Davey is so big on Pandora? Yes, because he made it on Mexico first. <laughs> uh, one of the really, and, and you will notice, um, since Pandora only operates in the United States, um, it is especially relevant for countries who are geographically um, close to uh, to the United States to also to also make it on on that platform. And I would say that for Argentinian, Colombian artists, or even Spanish artists, uh, Pandora is not a it's not a platform that is relevant for them, but for Canadian and Mexican artists, it is really relevant because because of the commercial and the people exchange that we have amongst our three countries, uh, we exchange a lot of culture. And any artist that um, that has a sizable footprint in Mexico will inevitably translate into Pandora because of the Mexican diaspora, you know? Uh, and I'll tell you a little bit about uh, David's story using his track Baila Conmigo, which is which was a worldwide hit. It was a huge hit, especially in the second half of 2019 and the first half of 2020. This track was released in 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 May, I believe, or in February. I I will check. I will, I will check the date. Um, but it didn't become viral until June, and it became viral in Mexico first. Even though he's a Colombian artist, and that's why. I've mentioned before that music right now doesn't really have any borders. Uh, probably the biggest border is language, but geography is not a border anymore. So he had never been in Mexico. He didn't really have a presence here, but this song started um, to become big in a beach town in Mexico called uh, uh, Acapulco with in, in dance dance clubs there and, and, and stuff like that. And then he jumped to Facebook because then TikTok was not really a thing uh, here in Mexico. And uh, he started to, to jump into memes and, and, and stuff like that on, on Facebook. And then it exploded on YouTube and the rest is history. The track became huge, not only in Mexico, but all over Latin America and even some countries that are uh, don't, don't even speak Spanish as the first language, such, such as France, Italy. Uh, this track had a huge performance there as well, and Brazil, and uh, uh, and that's why uh, uh, we, whenever an artist makes a marketing plan today, it is really important that they take an account that the world is their oyster right now, because digital platforms enable them to do that. Once the live music sector comes back, and you know it's already slowly showing signs of life, how do you foresee regional Latin music or artists like Davey, for example, fitting in? Depends on where in the world you are, I think. Um, in regional music genres, the physical format 
um, it's still alive, but it's diminishing more rapidly in our markets in Latin America than it is in the US, as surprising as that may sound. Because in our markets, piracy, CD piracy was so big and so pervasive and that um, it almost killed the industry here in Mexico. If, if, if the situation was dire, dire in, in the United States and the, in the UK or Europe, in Latin America, the situation was much worse. And digital platforms came, came to save the industry here, that truly. And, and, and when you see the amount of, of income coming from digital streams, and just to give you an idea, I recently read a report that the IFPI report mentioned that around 60, 62% of, of the income generated by, by the industry in 2020 came from music streaming. In Latin America, the average is around 80%. So that just gives you an idea on how important streaming has become for Latin America because piracy was rampant here, totally out of control. And that's why probably why Mexico City, for instance, became such, such a hotspot for, for music streaming because it was adopted and embraced by, by the Mexican music consumers immediately. So I think that um, for the newer generations, um, music streaming, it's going to play a significant role in making sure that these music genres stay alive. Because in our markets, um, our, the music consumers don't use physical formats anymore at all. And uh, we have seen that on the plummeting of, 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 on sales of digital formats here. Uh, as compared even to the US, I've seen news during the pandemic of vinyl and CDs uh, sales. Well, vinyl sales increased, I believe, during the 2020. And CDs sales decreased, but only a little. If, the, if that didn't happen in Latin America, in Latin America, all physical formats, format sales plummeted. So I do think that digital platforms are going to make sure that these kind of artists have a future. And that's, that's why it's important to, to, to make sure that all music genres um, are present and all music, uh, original music artists have their music up on digital platforms. And of course, work with uh, the curator teams on the main digital streaming platforms to make sure that they are showcased proper, properly. But I'm sure they have noticed that already on the streams. Uh, that's why we're making this article because we saw a spike on activity. How important is like live music, um, actual concerts and touring to artists in regional Latin music genres like these? It is huge because um, of course it is huge for all, all type of artists, but I, I believe that for Latin American music genres, it's even more important because these uh, singers monetize mostly on, on, on YouTube and and I'm gonna say something controversial, but also undeniable. Um, YouTube, amongst all of the digital platforms, is possibly the one that pays the lowest royalty rate to music rights holders. And um, even though they, they be trying to say differently, that's, that's the way it is. So a percentage of, of, of the income that these artists perceive from, from, from digital streaming, either on audio or on video, it's much smaller as compared to other artists. So there, I think that's, that's why for them, it is much more important to, 
to be able to perform live uh, than possibly other artists who are streaming driven artists and that then they can possibly survive through, through times like this just from their digital income. And, uh, and that's why I think um, many, there have been, in Mexico, there's been uh, different efforts from, from the industry in order to, to do kind of GoFundMe initiatives uh, in order to be able to, to rescue the artists that are, that are going through a rough time now. But I'm pre pretty sure that the ones that are having the rougher time are artists doing this, this kind of music because they cannot perform right now in Mexico. Mm. And for them, that's a really important source of income. So just to put a sort of pin in this whole series, and especially in part three, what is the future of Latin music genres, especially on the regional level? How will they evolve even more or... To put it another way, if you were to predict the next sort of genre hybridization in Latin music to generate significant attention, what would that be? Mm, that would be a risky thing to predict <laughs> because <laughs> one of the things about culture is that uh, you don't really know where what is going to come next. So true. And. Uh, one of the things that uh, we have to do when when we're dealing with talent scouting and trying to find the newest trends is to keep our our antennas ready to 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 see what's going to happen. What I do believe is that it's going to have to do with something that involves technology. Most of the artists that we see becoming popular today are artists that haven't necessarily gone to, have gone have gone and got a formal music formation. They haven't gone to the conservatory. They're not necessarily musicians who went to school to do, to, do, to, do, to do this. Some of them have, of course. It's not saying that they're not professional about what they do. Many of them have learned to make music on their rooms, especially during the pandemic. I think that has become clear. And uh, using computers, not live instruments. So I think technology has going to play a major role on on the evolution of Latin music genres as a whole. I think, and that's why I wanted and, or to speak about um, hybrid genres in this last piece, because these, these genres show the, the mixing of music made with computers with regional Mexican, regional Mexican and Colombian music, who's mainly done with instruments, some of them ancestral instruments in the case of cumbia, for instance. Mm. And, uh, and uh, they're mixing, the, these two th elements are colliding. And um, whatever new genre we're going to see happening in the future is going to necessarily have some, have some sort of fusion between computer-generated music and regional uh, and regional music done with traditional instruments and traditional lyrics and traditional messaging. And that's one of the things that, are, that is also important. I believe that as opposed to pop music, which uh, as we know, pop is a genre that um, is based on the appeal of latest cultural trends, and, uh, but it's a shape-shifting genre. It's not necessarily, it's very dynamic. And it embraces one thing this year and embraces a totally different thing the next year. And that's the nature of pop music, and that's okay. But regional 
regional music, not only in Latin America, but in the whole world, it's much more rigid and, and very specific uh, uh, a sense because regional music is all about identity. And uh, whatever next iteration we're going to see about regional music, not only in Mexico or in Colombia or in Argentina, but in the whole world, it's, it has necessarily to, to be about belonging. It has to be about pride. And it has to be uh, being part of something bigger than oneself. You know, that's I think the the main message that regional music genres try to convey to the audience. Uh, I am from this part of the world. This is the way I live. This is how I live my everyday life, and I'm proud of it. You know, I think that's the main messages that any regional music genre has as a goal, and that's going to prevail. You you said that so beautifully, Francisco. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much for chatting with us today, Francisco. Uh, we've done it a couple of times. Let's just do it again. Um, if people want to reach out to you on social media or anything like that, is there a place they can uh, contact you? Of course, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I'm happy to connect there. Just look up my name, Francisco Toscano. Or if you want, we can also connect on Twitter, FCO Toscano. That's how you have to look up for me. That's my user handle. And then we can start ch chatting and exchanging points of view about the, this intersection of music and data that is so interesting. Uh, uh, digital platforms came to revolutionize the world. We can now measure interest and we can now measure appeal of artists, which before was a gut feeling. Now we can really measure it. And that's it's a really exciting leap that we like a really exciting world that we live in today. How Music Charts is written and produced by Jason Hoven and Rutger Rosenborg of Chartmetric. As part of our effort to equip artists with the power of music analytics, we've just rolled out a new artist tier, which you can sign up for at app.chartmetric.com slash plan slash artist for about the price of a coffee per week. Free Chartmetric accounts are available at chartmetric.com and podcast notes are at blog.chartmetric.com. You can also subscribe there for additional insights delivered to your inbox right after we publish. Did we mention we have a YouTube channel? That's right. Subscribe for Chartmetric tutorials and tips for indie artists. Follow our thoughts on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, all at Chartmetric. That's Chartmetric, no S. That's it. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.